Well, we have a special guest speaker today for you to bring us God's Word as we continue uh, going through the book of Acts. And I'm going to read God's Word to you, and I'm going to ask you to stand one more time, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. We're in chapter uh, 4 of the book of Acts, and uh, our series is Unfinished, uh, The Church on Purpose. So let's, um, let us read starting at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that... A notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot... For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the, and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, took upon their, now, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant them to, to, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of God's word and fill our brother with your spirit as he comes and preaches. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. 
I don't know why Tony, Tony was a little sneaky there. He's like keeping it in suspense here. But no special speaker. It's just me. <laughs> wow. Well, as he said, we are continuing our series in Acts. So our text for today is Acts 4, verses 13 through 31. So if you want to turn there, if you have your Bible, or if you have your phone, you can scroll and swipe and poke your way there. Acts 4, 13 to 31. Now, we've been working through this story involving Peter and John the last couple weeks, if you have been with us. And it all started, Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray, and they see this lame man outside, and they heal him. So they tell him, we don't have money or gold for you, but we do have, we're going to give to you. Get up and walk. So he gets up and walks and dances and sings. He's obviously very excited to be healed. So they all go in the temple. They're rejoicing, giving praise to God and to Jesus. And then Peter and John use this opportunity to basically preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it says that a crowd of 5,000 people came to Christ. Amazing story. Then we saw last week how basically the status quo, the establishment, the priests and the elders didn't like all this commotion going on. So they arrest Peter and John, they spent the night in prison, and then they call them to testify about what they are doing. Now, I don't know about you, when Dell was preaching last week, for some reason, the mind that, uh, the thing that came to mind to me was Harry Potter. Has anybody seen Harry Potter here? I think it's the prisoner of Azkaban, where he... Harry Potter's on trial with the Ministry of Magic. So they bring him into this like dark room and it's all black. And they sit him in this chair by himself and there's like a high six-foot wall all around. And all these other magicians are all lined up in their robes and stuff. And that was just the picture I had of this Sanhedrin. So it says there's these 70 people all kind of against Peter and John. And I'm sure it was this very intimidating situation set up where they're kind of like all of us versus you. Now, I don't know about you, but probably most of us here, myself included, even this situation here is pretty intimidating. But I think you're all on my side. I think you're all kind of rooting for me. So I can't imagine sitting in the middle and having you all kind of looming over and judging me and being out to get me. So this is the scene we see Peter and John enter into this situation where everyone's just against them, basically. And this is the same group of people who just earlier had convicted and tried and condemned Jesus to death. So they're fully aware of what is capable here, and all the odds are kind of stacked against them. Now, I think the important thing is Peter and John enter in, and as we saw last week, the response that they give is this Acts 4, 8 to 12. This is the answer that Peter gives to what is happening. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Amen. Let's pray. God, I just thank you that we are uh, here in this place this morning. I know uh, for my own self and our family, it's been kind of a battle to get here. It seems like uh, everything was stacked against us, and I'm sure that's true for a lot of other people here. 
But I pray and thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather as your people and look at your word and study your truth, God. Help us to just uh, take a deep breath and pause and really just be in this place and be open to uh, your word, what you would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul and, or, uh, Peter and John say all that, and then this is where we pick up here in Acts 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now right off the bat, this verse kind of gives me hope since I have really no earthly, earthly credentials to be standing up here today. Now, I'm not entirely unschooled. I do actually have a bachelor's degree, but it's a bachelor's degree in jazz guitar performance. <laughs> so I think that's about as close to unschooled as you can possibly get <laughs> while still being schooled. But it says the follow-up to them being unschooled is that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, I think it's easy for us to assume at this point, like the Sanhedrin did, that this applies because Peter and John had been physically with Jesus before. I think the religious leaders missed the point, though, in saying this because they really thought that that was the uh, true source of their strength. But we can see if we back up a little bit, this is earlier when Jesus is still alive. He's still walking the earth next to the apostles. In Matthew 19, there is the story of the rich young ruler. So he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus answers, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus to his disciples said, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when the disciples had heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Well, this is my own interpretation that I'm adding here, but I like to think a lot of times that Jesus just gave a big eye roll, or kind of a sigh at the apostles. <laughs> Basically, he, he says it's impossible for man to inherit eternal life, but with God, all things are possible. And Peter's like, oh yeah, well, we've done that. We've followed you, Jesus. We've given everything up. So what's in it for us? What do I get? What's for me? And Jesus, you can tell kind of his frustration then in the response later on, where it's like, no, you missed it. You missed the point again. In Luke chapter 9, John says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, but don't worry, we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Now, it's funny to me because I feel like John comes to Jesus and he's like, we're doing so good. Like, he wants like a pat on the back. This is what we're doing, Jesus. Somebody was trying to drive out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of us. So we told him no. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing that? Whoever is not against you is for you. I can tell another eye-roll moment almost where Jesus is like, you missed it. You missed the point again. Then in Matthew 16, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And Peter says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus answers, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. There are all kinds of these examples when Jesus is walking the earth physically with the disciples that they just always get it wrong. 
Jesus says, stay up with me in the garden the night he's betrayed and pray with me, and they fall asleep. And then they wake up, and Peter says, yeah, and he tries to cut off a guard's ear because he thinks somehow Jesus' kingdom is still going to be of this world. It's amazing to me that when Jesus is right there with them, they still seem to get so much wrong. Sometimes I think, we think if Jesus showed up here and was physically next to us, then everything would be easier. We'd get everything right. But I think we would be just like the apostles. If we saw Jesus in a physical way standing here with us, we would just expect everything from him to be tangible, to be physical, and to be of this world. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21 says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Now this is great news for you and me. This means that none of us have seen Jesus physically. None of us have walked with him in the flesh. But it's not that walking with him in the flesh that gives us power or strength, or that gave power or strength to Peter and John. It's the redemptive work that Christ gives to us through grace alone, that by doing so with that, these men were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Through prayer, we can be with Jesus, and by reading and studying God's word, we can understand his teachings. Now, this is the same thing that causes real change, real courage and power to Peter and John. It's God's word, it's his Holy Spirit, and those are the same things that are available to us right now in this day and age to everyone who calls Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. So picking up in this story, continuing on in verse 14, that was only one verse, so we'll be here a while. I'm just kidding, that was a joke. (laughs) Picking up in verse 14, but since they, this is the elders in the Sanhedrin, could see that the men who had been see that the man who had been healed standing there with them there was nothing they could say so they ordered them to withdraw from the sanhedrin and then conferred together what are we going to do with these men they asked everyone living in jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name now i think this is kind of a funny scene right here it's it, If you imagine the Harry Potter thing again, it's like these two men versus 70 in this super intimidating thing. And it's like they call them in, and they're like, what do you have to say for themselves? And Peter and John give their answer, and then they're like, hmm, okay, get out of here so we can all talk amongst ourselves and figure out how to reply to you. So they send them away, and then they talk, and it's like they bring them back in, and then they're like, no, wait, wait. So it's like really the people that should have all the power, all the control, all the intimidation— don't. They keep reacting to Peter and John and keep almost sending them away so they can figure out what they're going to say. Now, it's really funny that they uh, really, they see all these things. They've seen the evidence, and they're almost like, what can we do? We want to stop Peter and John. We don't want them to upset the status quo, so to speak. We want things to stay the same. But too many people know, so we can't lie about it, can't cover it up, because too many people know We have this evidence here of this man who was healed, so we can't sweep that under the rug, or we can't deny that something amazing happened. They're just trying to make what happened fit in with what they already think, instead of letting what happened justify what they are going to think. So we continue on, verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Then it continues in verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them. All the people were praising God for what happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. I'm sorry, this, this seems like a little bit of a dig to me. Do you, how many people are over 40? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be careful here because I'm not over 40 yet. But it seems like if he wasn't over 40, you can sometimes get healed. And it's not a miracle. It's like I can wake up one day and my back hurts. I can wake up the next day and it doesn't. But, but since he was over 40, it definitely had to be a miracle. That was the only way that he could be healed here. But it's interesting to me, they presented with all this evidence, this is kind of the conclusion they come to, is just, well, don't do again, here's kind of some empty threats, and get out of here, because they have their hands tied. Now this is, I feel like it's a really big cliche, but has anyone ever been wrong in their life? Anyone at all? It's a funny cliche, but this, it happens so much, I, I have to share it here, but when I'm looking for things at home, and I'm almost afraid to ask my wife, if it's there or not. So just the other day, I'm trying to get peanut butter for Andrew. And I'm like, where is the peanut butter? I know where it is. It's in the pantry, bottom shelf. There's a big one and a little one. But I look, and I don't see it. But I'm like, it has to be there, right? So I look again, and I don't see it. So then I go to her, and I'm like, we have no peanut butter. What am I supposed to do? We have no peanut butter for Andrew. And she says, no, it's there. And I'm, I'm pretty afraid, because I know it's probably there, because she's right. But I'm like... A little bit certain where I'm like, no, you know what? I'm right, and it's not there. But lo and behold, there was a whole bunch of peanut butter there. And I don't know why, but my eyes were blind to it the first couple times. But I think we've all had these times where we've been certain that we're right, when really someone else thinks they're certain that they're right. And we have these conflicts that arise. Now, a funny story, a couple years ago, I was hanging out with uh, our friends, and somehow the, con uh, the topic of narwhals came out. Does anyone know what a narwhal is? Yeah, okay, so we're talking about narwhals. It's, if you don't know, it's an Arctic whale. It has a big horn. It's not really a horn. It's like a tooth tusk. Um, so the more you know. You can watch Aknots with Andrew to learn more about the narwhals. But narwhals are real. They live in the Arctic. We're having this argument with our friend, and he's saying, no, narwhals are just made up. They're fake. They're no more real than unicorns. So, of course, we're trying to convince him that, no, narwhals are, in fact, real. But we're bringing up evidence. Katie shows a picture on her phone of this narwhal. And he's like, well, I could find a picture of my phone. I mean, unicorn, that doesn't make it real, you know. <laughs> so we're stuck in this debate. How many times have you had a debate with somebody and it just seems to entrench them more in what they already believed instead of changing their mind? So we're going back and forth. We're certain we're right that narwhals are real. He's certain he's right that narwhals aren't. And really nothing productive came about that. But there was an interesting point where we kind of conceded the argument, because really we knew that we were right. We knew we had facts and truth on our side. So there's an interesting thing that happens when that's true, where really you don't, you're not afraid of anything that someone could bring before you. There's no new evidence, there's no new argument or slick debate that they could bring, because you know you have truth on your side. You know nothing's going to disagree with it. It might be a pretty slick argument, but it's not dis going to disagree with the truth. I think that's an interesting parallel here where Peter and John almost don't have to stand up or try and debate or argue their point 
They just simply say, we know we have truth on our side. We know God is the one who has done this amazing miracle. So we don't have to answer to you. We have to answer to him. So we've made up our mind. You can almost make up your mind. And then they leave it at that. Now it says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant and father David. Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So Peter and John get let go. Thankfully, they go back to their people. They tell them what happened. And this is kind of their response, which is to quote scripture and to pray to God. Now, I think it's interesting, this little passage that they quote here is Psalm 2. And it's actually the beginning of Psalm 2. This is kind of an interesting choice, because I think if you just read that, it's easy to kind of get this sense of, they're almost like, oh, why us? We're God's anointing. We're trying to do his will, but we're oppressed. People are plotting against us in vain. But further on in Psalm 2, this is what it ends with. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I think the main thing to hone in on on this Psalm 2 is that God is the one who is in charge. No one and nothing can stand against him. And that includes all of us. That includes the people who think they're standing on God's side, but are really standing in his way. I think if we ever want to actually have that confidence that we are right, then it needs to be based on something, not just our own opinion. If we want to be 100% certain that narwhals are real or not, we need to make sure that we are checking that against truth. And the ultimate truth is the revelation of truth in God's word. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, when I was in college, we, uh, there were a whole bunch of separate buildings on campus, as most of them are. And there were all these sidewalks that connected all the buildings, right? So there was kind of the main, I guess you would call it the quad in a way, but where the bell tower was. There's the library and the music building, the art building. And there were all these sidewalks, but they all went along the outside. So it would go around and turn and go 90 degrees, which naturally, who has time for that, right? If you're going to go from the library to the art building, you're just going to cut right across, straight and diagonal. So it was funny where there were almost all these nice paved sidewalks, but then just these mud paths just running through. Each, every little diagonal you could think of, building to building, cutting through the grass. What was interesting is then I left, and I came back, I think it was either junior or senior year, and they had paved all those diagonal paths. So they were nice concrete paths going in all these lines, building to buildings. Now the point is, 
paths don't necessarily show up where you should be walking. Sometimes they get made because people are going there anyway. Matthew 7, 13 to 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. Now, I think it's easy to think sometimes, oh, we're in church, we're doing good, we must be, right? Or there's a lot of people that agree with us. The sidewalk is really nice and smooth. Maybe it goes downhill a little bit, and it's wide, and it's new, and it's level. But that doesn't mean that that's the way we should go. It doesn't mean the way that anyone should be walking. We need to constantly check our paths, check the way we are going against God's word. Now, I know for myself, this is a really easy thing to do, is we read stories like this, and we just immediately assume that we are the hero. How many people, if you read this story, you think, yeah, I'm Peter, or I'm John. I'm the hero. I'm getting it right. I'm telling those bad guys off. They're the ones that are wrong. But the truth is, there's 70 men who thought they were doing God's work, and they really weren't. They thought they were right. And there were two men who knew that they were right, and everyone else thought they were wrong. It's much easier to be on that wide, nice, easy path than the one that God has for us. If you ever feel like you're right, if you ever feel like narwhals are real, it's probably time to go back and make sure that you have truth and that it's objectively as possible to make sure that you have not deceived yourself. The two means that Peter and John used to follow and make sure are the same ways that we have today, which is through prayer and through God's word. Henry Clay, Henry Clay Trumbull said this quote, Conscience is not given to a man to instruct him in the right, but to prompt him to choose the right instead of the wrong. When he is instructed as to what is right, it tells a man that he ought to do right but it does not tell him what is right. And if a man has made up his mind that a certain wrong course is the right one, the more he follows his conscience, the more hopeless he is as a wrongdoer. One is pretty far gone in an evil way when he serves the devil conscientiously. Did you catch that part in there? Our conscience tells us that we should do right, but it does not tell us what right is. It tells us that we should be doing right. How many people usually live their entire lives trying to do what's right? They try and do it. But without some greater truth or hierarchy above us, we're all just doing our own things. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Without anything above our conscience, it's all just he said, she said, everybody just doing what they please and there's no greater truth to what is actually right. I think that's the point that we miss sometimes. We think anyone who doesn't agree with us must not care about doing right, but really what their right is is just different than ours, and we need some higher standard to be what is truthfully actually right. It says, continuing on here in verse 27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, what's interesting to me is that we might read that and think, wow, it's so amazing. How come that almost doesn't happen here? Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes my prayers are just selfish. We can clearly see that this prayer is very selfless. What happens is they don't pray for safety. Peter and John don't say, keep us safe, God, or keep us comfortable, or smote those men. What they pray for is great boldness. And then it says the place was shaken, and they spoke the word of God boldly. Their prayer got answered. Their prayer was boldness, and then they spoke the word of God boldly. I fear that too often my prayer is, God, meet my needs. God, do something for me. God, keep me comfortable. God, heal this person. And it's great if those prayers get answered, but we're just thinking about what we want still. We, don't, we need to get outside of ourselves and say, Lord, what do you want? Lord, here is how you've already used all these horrible situations, how you've already used the death of Jesus to redeem the entire world. What an amazing thing. We would not have thought of that on our own. So they surrender their thoughts and their wills to God. They say, God, we just want to do what you will have us to do boldly. And God shows up and he answers their prayer to do that boldly. The answer to the question of how Peter and John, though they were unschooled, were able to stand up to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and speak boldly is revealed in the end of this passage. After they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, obviously, we can't speak the word of God boldly if we don't know the word of God. So step one is to open it and to read it. Now, I must admit, it's amazing to me how difficult that is. Seemingly, you'd think, oh, it's easy. You just open this book and you read it, right? But I must say it's amazing the mornings where I could read anything. I could sit on my phone and the kids are fine. But if I try and read God's word, there's crying and there's chaos and there's gnashing of teeth. It's, it's like direct opposition. It's amazing how it just seems to work out that way. And you're like, is this coincidence? There are no coincidences. God is in control. We are up against a fight. The devil does not want you to read your Bible. He wants you to be comfortable. He wants you to sit in the rows of the 70 men and say, yeah, I agree. We must be doing God's word instead of actually knowing what's God's word and what his will is. We face strong opposition to reading God's word. But that doesn't mean we should give up. We have hope through the Holy Spirit in leaning into this. It is worth reading. It is worth knowing. It is worth standing up and fighting against it to be in your word, to learn about God, and to really dwell in his ways. Now, step two is not just to know about God, but to know him personally through time spent in prayer. Now, I think this is the big one here. It's, it's really easy to just condemn the Sanhedrin and say, oh, they missed it. What were they thinking? But they were what we are today. They are the church. They were the establishment. They were the people that should know God. But the problem is they knew about God, but they did not know him personally. They had spent plenty of time in his word, opening it, reading it, studying it. They had constructed with their own intellect, here's what we think God looks like. And then Jesus showed up and they said, well, you don't look like this. 
So you must not be God. And they rejected him. They knew about God. They had their own idea of God, but they didn't know him. And that's the thing that we as the church, as religious people, are prone to falling into. That's what I can fall into. I can think I know God just because I know what I think he looks like in my own head. But God is bigger than me. God is outside of my own intellect. And I need to constantly tear down the God I've constructed, what I think he looks like, and be open to who he really is and where he really is meeting me. And step three is to remember that we are imperfect vessels. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We are leaky containers that constantly need filling by God. I think it's kind of a, I don't want to say cliche, but a church thing that we say you should not be serving God out of a place of being empty, because that would be from our own strength and our own purpose. What we say is we should be full. We should be full of God and his spirit so that we overflow into blessing others. But the problem is we don't hold water perfectly. We, you can't get filled up and then a week later be overflowing to pour out to other people. We constantly leak. We're constantly draining down. The idea I had kind of years ago was this thought that we think there's a stairway to heaven. And we, we can take a, each step, right? I read my Bible yesterday. I'll take a step closer to God. I came to church. I'll take a step. But then if I, wish, I miss a month, well, that's okay. I'll just stay here on this step. And then I'll take another step some other time. But the problem is it's not a step towards God. It's like an escalator that's working against us. We default into our human nature And we move away from him. To think that we can just step to God, okay, we'll take a step, we'll take a step. That's religion. That's what the Sanhedrin had. They had this religion. We'll know a little bit more today. We'll know a little bit more tomorrow. But no one has good relationship with anyone when that is your thinking. I don't know about you, but there's plenty of friends that I wish I kept up more with. And I don't think, I have such a good relationship with them because we talked five months ago. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You don't have relationship with someone. You don't know them. You, you almost did. You can kind of catch up. But to have real relationship, we need to be constantly in it and engaging and talking with people. That's the fruit of good relationships in our lives. What Jesus wants for us is a relationship, not religion. He doesn't want us to know more about him. He doesn't want us to study this. He doesn't want us to pick up our own bootstraps and come to church and dust off and look good. He wants relationship with him. I was thinking about this with uh, communion. Oftentimes we take communion first Sunday of the month, and the kind of phrase we use is that we would examine ourselves so we don't come to his cross in an unworthy manner. And I think it's easy to interpret that as I need to dust myself off, and I need to, I need to feel sufficiently guilty and bad about my sin so that he'll forgive me. But that is missing the mark at all. The unworthy manner is us bringing any of this preconceived notions that we have about God with us. We say, this is what he looks like. This is what he wants. This is what I've done all my life is just shown up and said, oh, I feel real bad. And then he'll forgive me. He wants us to tear down all of that. He wants us to say, God, we are nothing. We are sinners in your hand. And you, through Jesus Christ, are so merciful and good and amazing. And what you want is not to say, do this, do that, but what you want is relationship with us. 
We need to just forget what we think we know, our own intellect, our own deceitful heart, and just lean in to him and that relationship. That is the worthy manner that we can bring to communion is say, we are nothing, God. Fill us up. Fill us with your spirit and your truth. Now, if we are not continually praying in every and all circumstance, then we run the risk of knowing about him and not knowing him personally. We might think we're doing his will or doing right, but we can be just as deceived as the Sanhedrin and leaning on our own understanding. Now, amazingly, his mercies are new every morning. We cannot live with old mercies. We need new ones each and every day. I think this is what we forget as we think our, our past work or our vessels, where it's good to look at that and say, God, thank you so much for ways that you have sustained us. We need them new every day. We don't just need old stories about what God has done. We need new stories about what he is doing here and now. Lamentations 3, 22 to 27 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If we think we're doing all right, and we haven't been in his word, and we haven't prayed to God, then there's a pretty good chance that we're just thinking we should do right through our conscience. But we don't know what right is, and we fall back into our own sinful thinking, our own selfish thoughts. God, it's about me. It's not about us. It's about God. We need to be in his word to realign what we know, what right is, and we need to be spending time in prayer so that we can have personal relationship with him and not just know about him. So what's the point of all this? Let's not read this story as a history lesson, as something that happened long ago or does not apply to here and now, but this is an example of what is possible for us if we follow this story as an example. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us have deceitful hearts. So if we've woken up and not checked our hearts, thoughts, or motives against God's word, there's a possibility we are on the wrong path and that we are part of the problem instead of the solution. If we are not praying continually in every and all circumstances, then we run the risk of knowing about God instead of knowing him personally. We might think we're doing his will or doing right, but we could be deceived and leaning on our own understanding. His mercies are new every morning. We cannot live on old mercies. We need them each and every day. God, let's pray. God, I give you so much praise um, this morning and thanks that you are kind and compassionate and a patient God. That you do not just destroy us, even though we seem to not get it, but that you, in your love, continue to work with us through your spirit to reveal your truths to us, that we can trust you and follow you and know you all the days of our life, God. I pray for your forgiveness in the times that we think we are Peter and John, but really we are the Sanhedrin, that we are standing in your way. There's no worse place to be, God. I pray that you would humble us, 
that we would seek your will above all things and your truth, and that we would join in with what you are doing in your power. I pray, God, for great boldness in this room. I pray on the cusp here of VBS, God, that our people would be full of your truth and your boldness to proclaim your word to these children, to the surrounding community, to anyone who would come here, God. I pray that you would give us strength to not shy away from what your truth says. I pray that you would not let us be swayed back and forth, God, in popular opinion or what is going on now, but that we would be people grounded in your truth, meditating on it daily, I pray, God, that you would help each and every one of us to be so in your word that we would feel great boldness in even calling out each other, God. I pray that people would feel comfortable in saying, I don't think that's right, or I don't think this is right. We all need checks and balances, especially the people standing up here who people just assume are right, God. I don't assume I'm right. I hope I'm right. I hope that your truth is right that I've communicated this morning, God. But ultimately, it's from you and your spirit here. I pray that you would help us to not be a religious people, God, but really have relationship with you. I pray for anyone here who has not experienced relationship with Jesus Christ. I know there's a long time in my life where I thought I had it, and it was just the rules. It was just what not to do. It was kind of risk management of life, God, and it was exhausting, so to speak. I pray that you would help us to not be religious and following rules, but that we would have relationship with you. I pray if anyone does not understand this gift of grace and compassion and love that's poured out upon us, not because we deserve it, God, but because of what your son, Jesus Christ, has done, I pray that you would reveal that to them. I pray that you would break us all, that we would be humbly accepting of your grace and truth, and that it would be Jesus' blood who flows in our veins and gives us life. It is not a set of rules that we follow that make bad people good, God, but it is Jesus' life that makes dead people alive. I pray for each and every one of us that we would be full of your spirit, just as Peter and John were, that we could stand up to any opposition, anything that would come against us. We would say, we don't, we're not afraid of people that could uh, hurt our body, God, but we count to the Lord, who is the maker of all things and holds our soul and eternal life in the balance, God. I thank you for this amazing day and these people here. I pray that they would all be in one heart and one accord, that we would be focused on you. In Jesus' name we pray. I don't want to say amen. I'm not done yet. I got some more here. <laughs> we pray, God, we thank you for all this. We recognize that it is through you that it is every day, God. Um, I think it's easy to come in and be like, oh yeah, hurrah, this is Sunday morning battle cry. But I know, God, that every day, uh, the second we leave here is when the uh, rubber meets the road, so to speak, God. When life gets tough, when things come at us, we know that we don't fight against this world and things seen, but things unseen, God. But we have a great God and power and the Holy Spirit who fights for us. So I pray that you will help us to be a people who feeds on your word every day, every minute, that you are tied up and bound to us, God, and that your peace and your love and your compassion for all of us would be just poured out upon us, God. I think too often we come to church, we do religion, and we dabble or get a little sprinkled in the rain in who you are, God. But you want to pour out your truth and mercy and love upon us. I pray that it would be just a deluge of water coming down, that it would 
almost crush us from the weight, that we would be completely soaked in who you are, God, and permeated in your truth and your boldness here. We recognize that this is only possible through you and what you are doing. It doesn't come from us. It's not from anything slick that we would say. And that if we are apart from you, then we are just as prone to follow the bad guys, so to speak, God, the Sanhedrin, and go their way. But we pray that through your truth and your mercy and your grace, we would be full of your Holy Spirit and that we would be on your side and your team and make a great difference in this world for Jesus Christ. Pray that you would help us both in our lives, in our hearts, first and foremost, transform us, God, from the inside out so that we can transform the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.